Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Fenway Rundown, the premier podcast for all things Boston Red Sox. You know, people harp on the last place thing, but essentially what's important is the record. If the Red Sox want people to start thinking the ownership cares, then maybe they should talk. This is the Fenway Rundown, brought to you by Mass Live. Here are your hosts, Chris Cotillo and Sean McAdam. Happy Tuesday. It's time for a brand new Fenway Rundown. I'm Chris Cotillo, fresh off a, uh, a stretch of 10 days where I was off, um, enjoyed some time down at the U.S. Open, did not watch uh, a ton of Red Sox baseball, which is the kind of the goal um, of a vacation, but I'm caught up. I'm ready to go. And we have Sean McAdam, who is in St. Petersburg, covering the Red Sox Rays series this week. Red Sox continuing a road trip, three in Kansas City, three in Tampa. Or, or St. Pete. People down there get very, very upset when you say it's in Tampa because of all the uh, local politics and the issues they have there with the stadium. But Red Sox get an impressive win on Labor Day yesterday. I've now won three in a row. Um, I'm not sure if they can say we're not dead yet. They sure look like it after being swept by the Astros and losing that first game in blowout fashion to Kansas City. Sean, you are around them uh, and have been more in the last couple of weeks than me, obviously. Is this team, which sits four and a half games back in the wild card race, with an 8% chance of getting into the playoffs. Is this team alive? Yeah, I think just barely, Chris. Um, the, the last three days have uh, injected a little bit of hope into the equation. It certainly looked like they were in big trouble after a very disappointing homestand against the Dodgers and Astros, in which they won only one game. And then they go and get blown out to the team that may well be the worst team in baseball right now, and that's the Kansas City Royals. And as hap- as happened so many times this season, uh, you know, once again, I'll hearken back to the Godfather three. Every time I think I'm out, they pull me back in. Right. That's what we've been watching with this team, where it's time to declare them dead and gone and slap a toe tag on them. They somehow turn it around and get hot. And sometimes do it against some very good teams, as they did yesterday against the Rays with a 7-3 to victory to open that series uh, on uh, on one of their final road trips of the season. So um, we'll see where this goes from here. But the fact that they have, uh, you know, they're, they're chasing really, I guess you can say, four teams, uh, Seattle, Texas, Houston, and Toronto, uh, we, we've seeded 
uh, one of those wild card spots to either Baltimore or Tampa Bay, likely Tampa Bay. But the fact that the Red Sox have remaining series, albeit both on the road, against both Texas and Toronto gives them a puncher's chance. Uh, but, you know, extending the boxing metaphor, uh, they're, they're going to need to rally and uh, try to knock out one of those teams in the final weeks here because the math is not good. As you said, the 8% chance as uh, as estimated by fan graphs is not very encouraging, but the opportunity to play two of the teams they're chasing ahead of them uh, and go head to head and make up some ground gives them at least an outside chance. And it makes, frankly, uh, you know, the last few weeks a little more interesting as long as that's in play. Yeah. And, you know, they obviously are going to see a lot of the Orioles coming up. And I think people look at that and say, oh, the schedule's, you know, not easy down the stretch. But that last series in Baltimore, there's a chance the Red Sox will be playing for something and the Orioles won't. You know, you could see them, um, you know, pulling their foot off the gas a little bit, setting up pitching, all that type of stuff. Yeah, the only thing I would mention about that, and I, I think that would have been a bigger factor as recently as a couple of years ago, but um, let's assume that the Orioles have that AL East title wrapped up, so they're not worried about getting that first round by. But because they're now going to have four days off uh, while the wild card round gets played, I'm wondering if teams play that a little differently down the stretch. Right. Um, you know, they're not turning around and playing on Tuesday. They won't be playing until Friday after the end of the regular season on Sunday. So maybe teams that are have already wrapped up know that they're going to be off, know who their matchup's going to be, all of that. They might treat those last few series a little bit more different, a little differently and not provide that rest because they're all going to have four days off after. So uh, just something to factor in. Yeah, well, that's an interesting point. Regardless, Red Sox have two more against the Rays, an off day, homestand, three against the Orioles, four against the Yankees, and then that big uh, road trip, three in Toronto, three in Texas. They come home, see the White Sox, who are a bad team, the Rays for two, and then finish up in Baltimore with four. A lot of divisional games, a lot of good teams, and obviously you know that road trip looms large. And, and I was going to say, before you brought it up to me, those three games in Toronto, a place where they played well and swept earlier in the year, and three against the Rangers, a team they took two or three of at Fenway around the 4th of July. You know, those games, to me, I think are, are make or break. They just have to kind of stay in it before then. They need to win these three series against the Rays with one more win. You know, the Orioles over the weekend at Fenway, and then really need to take three or four from a struggling Yankees team before they head out on that road trip to stay alive. I mean, four and a half with 24 to go is daunting. Uh, they have to pick up a game a week. Is that possible? I guess, you know, I hate when, in journalism school, they tell you never to say this, but only time will tell. But, you know, they're they're in a better spot considering they're playing Toronto and Texas than if they weren't. And things are, because of that, a little bit more in their control. Yeah. As I said, the opportunity to make up ground against the teams you're playing directly gives you a little bit of a puncher's chance. So um, we'll, we'll see what they do with that. But as you noted, the key is making sure those series are meaningful. And that's going to include getting at least one of the next two here in Tampa, uh, probably getting two out of three at home against Baltimore, and then taking three out of four from New York on that uh, on that upcoming homestand. I just think big picture, and we've I think I've asked this exact same question on here before, but just it's almost impossible to state how mercurial this team has been throughout the entire season. I mean, like every time you think that. All right, we have a good read on them. You know, they just lost five of six to the Dodgers and the Astros. 
have a horrible game in Kansas City. They come back out of nowhere, and you think they're about to roll over and just play out the string with three, you know, impressive wins. Every time, you know, they get to this point, let's say they win five, six in a row, all of a sudden they'll come out and lose three or four. Where do you put the blame for that inconsistency? Is it just the roster not being good enough? Is it on the players at the end of the day to not remain consistent? I mean, where do you kind of look at why that has been the case? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Uh, Certainly they have been the very picture of inconsistent. Um, And to me, this year has been a little bit of a flip of the script when you compare it to a year ago. We remember the last couple of years that the knock on them was, you know, anytime they got hot, well, it was done against Detroit and it was done against the White Sox and it was done against Oakland and all these bad teams that they beat up on, but they couldn't beat good teams Uh, particularly we know their struggles in their own division last year, ultimately croaked them uh, a year ago. They actually had a winning record outside their division in 2022, but they were so overmatched against teams in the East that it more than wiped out that advantage. Um, This year has been kind of the flip, notwithstanding the last homestand where two really good teams, the Dodgers and Astros, outclassed them. For the most part, the Red Sox have risen to the occasion and played the good teams extremely well this year. Case in point, uh, you know, what they what they did yesterday against Tampa and their ability to, you know, kind of match the moment. But the flip side to that is they've lost too many series to some really bad teams. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Oakland series where they lost two out of three out there. Think of being swept at home by a really, really bad St. Louis team. Think of being uh, losing a home series against Colorado. Uh, if they fall short, and we expect that ultimately because of the math they they will, I, I think you're going to look back on a lot of those series as being very winnable that they let game, they gave games away. And you can't afford to do that. You have to, you know, we all know how difficult it is to sweep even bad teams, whether it's home or away but you have to win series against St. Louis and Colorado and Oakland, and they failed to do that. Where's the blame line? Certainly the players get a big chunk of that. Um, you know, it's, it's tempting to say, well, is this something that they're not mentally prepared here and that, that this somehow can be laid at the feet uh, of the manager, Alex Cora for not having them motivated. However you want to say that, I don't think that's the case here. I think it's, it really is a reflection of how mediocre this team is. You know, even as we talk about them being still a playoff contender, they're a half dozen games over 500 in September. That's the very picture of mediocrity. And sometimes mediocre teams don't follow the script. They beat teams they shouldn't and lose to teams that they should or lose to teams they shouldn't. I think the... Even if they miss the playoffs, you look at this year, and we've talked about this, about the young players on the team, guys have stepped up, guys have looked like an important piece of the core moving forward. There have been some guys who have had breakout years. I think Bayo, for a large stretch, looked to be um, you know, that future ace. I know he's been kind of up and down here in the second half, better as of late. The guy, to me, that just continues to impress over and over and over in a way that you know maybe we didn't think was possible earlier in the year is Tristan Casas. You look up, as Alex Cora likes to say, through 123 games, 871 OPS, hitting 268, 23 homers, 59 RBIs. You know, really since June has been one of the best hitters in baseball in pretty much every category. And I know there's starting to be talk about his rookie of the year candidacy, and which will be a storyline down the stretch. But 
I think the Red Sox, you know, if we're going to give him credit for something, is being patient with him earlier in the year when the expected stats were there, the counting stats were not. They really stuck with the guy and thought, you know, he really has the capability to play every day. I know the defense has been spotty at times. They were going to move away from that. But just you look at the season he's had, and, and one of the most impressive full seasons, I think, by a Red Sox rookie in quite some time, and really uh, a guy that looks like, you know, not just potentially a contributor at the position of first base for a long time moving forward, but a potential star, because I don't even think that this is the ceiling for a guy like Casas, what we've seen, you know, the last couple months, it's been prolonged. It's been, you know, it's based on approach. He did a, a very, very impressive interview with David Laurel of Fangraphs the other day, where he was talking about how he approaches hitting. And if anybody hasn't checked that out, you know, you really should. It's just, you know, kind of illuminating on how much of a, how dedicated to the craft Casas is. Um, so I've just been thoroughly impressed. He's had a lot of big moments. The power's there. The average is there. This guy looks like, you know, he's going to solve the first base problem that really has been an issue for years for this team. Yeah, it really has. Since Mitch Moreland left that position, they, they've uh, run through any number of options, including Bobby Dahlbeck for a while. But, uh, you know, one thing in writing about what Alex Cora was saying about Tristan Casas pregame on Monday that he was a worthy rookie of the year candidate. Looking back at the season, I was amazed. This guy had 10, 10 hits in April. Right. Not 10 extra base hits, not 10 doubles and home runs, 10 hits, period. And as recently as I think it was June 8th, he was under the Mendoza line, that is under 200. And to see the kind of progress uh, he's made in the last two months is really pretty remarkable. I thought that that Casas was going to be a star because of his control of the strike zone. When you look at young hitters, that's obviously one of the things that a lot of them struggle with. Uh, they chase, uh, they get over eager, they're too aggressive, they're passive, uh, they can't quite recognize uh, pitches. And yet Casas always had that ability. We saw it last year with him working walks, even as he hit under 200 in his introduction to the big leagues in September, he was getting on base. Uh, he, he was not always making great contact, and sometimes he was unlucky, but you could see the foundation there. And then it took longer than I thought this year for him to get going. I didn't expect he was going to light up the league in April and May, but neither did I expect he was going to be hitting in the low 100s as we got into the end of May. But credit to him for sticking with his plan for uh, not panicking, uh, we know that he's a very confident young guy. Uh, you can tell that after 30 seconds of talking to him, he was not overwhelmed. If he was, he hit it very well. And here we are in September with a guy who's now in the top five or six in OPS in the American League and very much a contender for rookie of the year. I, I think uh, Gunnar Henderson with Baltimore is likely to be the guy that still wins the award. But uh, at this point, you'd be shocked if Casas didn't get a top three uh, finish in the American League rookie voting. And that, in turn, will result in the Red Sox getting an extra draft pick because of some of the new rules in the CBA about rookies on the opening day roster finishing in the top three in voting. So there's an extra reward for the club for showing that patience in him. Yeah, the odds very, very uh, strongly stacked uh, with Gunnar Henderson, the Baltimore Orioles. 
being the winner, you know, Casas looks to be kind of in the mix for second or third, and, and we'll see down the stretch how that plays out. Yoshida has faded a little bit in those odds and those expectations with the second half he's had, but Casas since the All-Star break, 340, 14 homers, 32 RBIs, six doubles, a triple, uh, and a one 0.113 OPS, which is obviously super impressive. And I think on the defensive side of the ball, um, don't have the metrics in front of me, but has looked to be more competent over there. And that was an issue early on for the Red Sox as well. And this is a guy who, with Justin Turner out pretty much of the f- mix of playing the field, I know he's done it here and there, but he's been playing for the most part, you know, every day. He missed two games with that tooth infection in, in New York um, or earlier in, I guess, in late August. But other than that, has basically played you know every single day since the All Star break, and and that's not you know something that I, I bet the Red Sox expected for a guy who's 23 has never carried this workload before, but has handled it and, and really passed all those tests with flying colors. I think. Yeah, it, it's hard to take issue with what he's done in the second half. It's been pretty remarkable, and as I said, credit to him for staying with his plan. Uh, not you know, uh, oftentimes when really talented young players come to the big leagues. Uh, you almost expect that they're going to have some failure and an interesting window into what they're like in terms of their competitiveness and everything else is to determine how they deal with that first stretch of failure. And I think we can say now, looking back on uh, what Casas went through in April and May in the first half of June and where he is now, he's done that in exemplary fashion. Chris Smith at Mass Live wrote today about uh, guys he wanted to see more of down the stretch, some young guys we haven't seen much, much of in the majors that even if the Red Sox are out of it or if there is a 92% chance, as Fangraph says, that they missed the playoffs, that these are some guys to watch, to keep an eye on, some guys that will be interesting. Willier Abreu is a guy who's been up now for a couple of weeks and has looked pretty good. Um, he's a guy that's going to get some run down the stretch with Jaron Duran out. The one I do want to talk about um, briefly is Sedan Rafaela. He has been on the roster now for about a week, has only started one game, I believe. Again, I was on vacation, so these numbers are wrong. You know, it's, uh, that, it's not my fault. That was, and that was a shortstop, too. Right, right. And um, so uh, for a guy who, you know, was playing every day in Worcester and, and looked like a guy who could be a big piece of um, – it still looks like he could be a big piece of the puzzle moving forward. A little curious to me you'd bring a guy up to sit. Um, that's usually not what they do with prospect, prospects. You saw – Last year, as a great example, with Casas, exactly a year ago yesterday, they brought him up. They sent Dahlbeck down. They said, here, first base is your position. We've seen that you know, time and time again when Emmanuel Valdez was up earlier in the year. He basically played second against righties all the time. Um, you know, Duran got called up and played center, right? I mean, these guys are not getting called up to sit. A little curious that they're, they're kind of changing their tune on that. Um, but the problem is there are too many uh, players for spots, as we pointed out. Duvall has obviously been excellent. You're not going to sit Verdugo or Yoshida. You want Trevor Story to play short. And so that's Rafaela's lot in life, to use the Rob Bradford phrase, um, that he is, I guess, a bench player and a speed threat late in games, defensive replacement. Is this detrimental to his development? I know it's only been a week, but would you rather see him playing every day, either in the majors or AAA? Because I just find this to be kind of a weird thing that, that they're doing right now. Yeah, it is different. And you had mentioned uh, the, the Dahlbeck and Casas comparison to a year ago. Uh, two very big differences to me. Number one, that team was guaranteed to finish in last by the time September arrived and there was nothing to play for. So there was no pretense about being competitive and still having a shot, which they do now. However, 
much of a long shot it might be. They're still technically alive and playing better. So that's one difference. And the other, as you already noted, was the options in the outfield where you have Yoshida, uh, where you have a hot Duval who's been scorching for the past month. And uh, even though he's out now for a couple of days with a strained hamstring, Alex Verdugo, who's been playing well, got the batting average up almost to 290, a couple of homers in the last week, flashing a little bit more power. So you have those spots spoken for. And frankly, Abreu um, is ahead of Rafaela in terms of his development because he has spent uh, pretty much the whole year at AAA. So he's had more exposure to that upper level of minor league pitching. Um, he's also a more uh, patient hitter. Uh, I wouldn't say that he has knowledge of the strike zone uh, that maybe Casas did as a rookie, but he will take his walks and he's a patient guy. So uh, I think it's a little easier to expose him to major league pitching than it is to Rafaela. And I think where you're going to see Rafaela is, you know, those late inning situations, either off the bench to pinch run or to provide defense in particular for Yoshida, who's obviously a, well below average defender in left field. Uh, Duval is okay defensively. I don't think he plays a very good center field. He's more of a corner guy to me now, but he's not a liability in a corner spot. And Verdugo has obviously played, uh, you know, well enough in right field to, I think, warrant gold glove consideration. Um, but uh, we'll see how that plays out. I, I think he's going to be a spare part, uh, but if they utilize his two biggest attributes right now and that is that is his skill as a defender both in the outfield and at short if need be and his speed that just being around big leaguers for a few weeks can be a, an enormous benefit I think you and I agree that he's going to be in the mix for perhaps a starting job next spring training a lot mm -hmm. depends on what they do do they bring Duval back um, do they trade Verdugo as we have uh, talked about being a possibility but I, I think being here and in that big league atmosphere and playing competitive games in September uh, is an important intangible and part of his uh, foundation building, if you will. So I'm OK right now if he's not in the starting lineup much, but I think he needs to be utilized and take advantage of those skills. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's obviously a possibility that the um... – Red Sox decide that when Pablo Reyes is ready, I'm not sure exactly where his his rehab stands at this point. Rafaela could go down if they want to keep Abreu on the roster as a more natural fit with Duran out. So this could be one of those things where you know people forget now the minor league season does go till the end of September. So um, he can go back and get those at bats and have you know just a taste of the big leagues, not too many at bats, but at least you know the chance to see what it's like and get acclimated a little bit here down the stretch. That's Sean McAdam, who's in St. Pete. The Red Sox back in action tonight. Cutter Crawford on the mound against former Red Sox target Zach Eflin, who's had a great year for the Rays. And uh, we'll have everything covered on Mass Live. This has been the Fenway Rundown, brought to you by Mass Live.